Okay, uh, flip in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to actually take Romans 12, verse 14, and then go into Romans 13, 1 through 7. And there's a reason that I connected the passages this way, uh, because they do go together, uh, as we'll see. And so Romans 12, 14, and uh, let's pray, and then we'll... Uh, We'll read our passage here first, sorry. Um, Romans 12, 14, these are the words of God. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have assembled here in your magnificent creation in order to bless you and worship you and serve you. Uh, we, we come to fellowship and eat together, but only because you came with friendship and food. That is your Son, whose word we live by, who came and died for our sin and gave us the bread of life, which is himself. May your Spirit prompt us today to love and good deeds so that we can see the transformation that we would love to see happen here in this county. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, proper vengeance is, is the message today, and you'll see why we're calling it that, mostly because of what Paul does with the, the word vengeance. And uh, now that we're outside, hopefully I won't get attacked like I did in, in uh, the barn there a few weeks ago. So last week, if you remember, we talked about the, the pressing issue of Christian community and how as living sacrifices we're supposed to function a certain way. So based on the doctrines of justification by faith alone, divine election, and so on, all the meaty stuff that Paul talks about in Romans, he says that obedience in light of these doctrines looks a certain way. And he says it looks like the Old Testament sacrificial system with one change, except instead of dying on the altar at the temple precinct, all of life is an altar on which we die in repentance and we live in obedience. So instead of worrying about what others are doing or not doing, uh, they don't look like they're doing a proper worship thing here with their altar. 
uh, we're overly criticizing other people, worrying about what they're doing. Instead of doing all of that, that that actually lends itself to a static of uh, a static posture, you might say, of being a reactionary. It's reactionism where you're just constantly reacting to what people are doing around you and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Instead of doing that, we should be a people of action. We should be people who serve one another out of, of, out of an overflow of obedience to God. So Paul has given us several imperatives, things to do, and it all centers on two, two things. One, obedience to and a love of God. And that, of course, then gives rise to service of one another. So we're supposed to use our gifts and we are supposed to outdo one another in love, that sort of thing. And we're supposed to show hospitality and so on. So that's all good stuff. Paul says very practical things we, we covered last week, but now he sort of shifts gears a bit. Romans 12, 1 through 13 was all about our obligations to one another in Christian community. And by the way, they are obligations. You are obligated to outdo one another in love. We're obligated to show hospitality towards one another. We're obligated to do those things. Uh, They're not suggestions, in other words. But he shifts gears now, and this next section moves on, and it deals with the life, basically, of God's people in relationship to the surrounding world. So he, he sort of says, this is what you're supposed to do in Christian community, but how does that affect the rest of the world? That's where he changes his trajectory and his conversation here. So... What is exactly our responsibility towards outsiders, so to speak? How, how are we to respond to the brambles of evil, which bungles with human relationships? It messes with it. It makes relationships gnarly and, and sometimes really difficult. How, how are we supposed to, to function in those things? And more specifically, when evil rears its ugly head, like what we saw the past couple of years, what is our role? What are we supposed to do? And on top of that, what is the role of the magistrate? These are the questions we're going to cover today. So look at your passage, and we'll just kind of walk through that, and I'll make comments as we go. Paul writes in verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He's echoing Jesus here in Matthew 5.44. Paul says not to retaliate towards other people, but to exhibit a consistent Christian ethic, love, and pray for your enemies. Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. So we have the power to respond, not as flippant reactionaries, always getting our, 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 uh, our hair tangled up in a bunch because we're so stressed out. We have the power not to act like that when evil happens in the world, but now we have the power to be principled people, people who can make a stand based on principle, based on conscience. So we are to do good and we are to bless others. Hostility and worldly pressure should be met with prayer, should be met with patience, and it should be met with intentional blessing. That's why uh, the the lockdowns were particularly egregious. And when and Chris and, and, and some of us were trying to put the rally together, um, we were essentially saying, we're doing this to save your business. They have no right to take this from you. And that's what loving and blessing and intentional blessing of others looks like. So for us, um, you know, the, the uh, Fauquier time showed up and, and uh, really tried to trip us up. And, and they were clearly not on the same page as we were because, you know, they're all about that journalistic integrity life. <laughs> but they showed up and we tried to just be a blessing. 
you know, some of Chris's speech, my speech, others, we were trying to in that moment with a lot of evil being, a, you know, perpetuated on us from the state saying, no, like we want to bless others. And it's a blessing to stand in the gap and say that, no, you can't just shut down your business or the state can't tell you to do that. So the, the persecution that comes, we know that it's a blessing to be persecuted for righteousness sake, not just because you like to be persecuted because you have like a, 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 you know, sort of fall on your own sword mantra. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Christianity itself is a confessional religion. But it's also an ethical and a practical religion. We believe in the incarnation of Jesus, that's God's son. And as a result of that historical fact, we are able to be present wherever we are, demonstrating what what I might call incarnational behavior. Being present where you are, acting righteously. That is, we have in every opportunity, and we have in every situation an opportunity to be sympathetic or empathetic, depending on the, the circumstance, in the scenario. And as Christians, we can do so with a heart that is softened and awakened to either the suffering, weep with those who weep, to either the suffering or the elation of others. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and you don't have to fake it. Oh, yay, congratulations that that happened to you. But deep side, you're envious. <laughs> no, rejoice. Be happy towards them and express that. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Christianity is not a power religion. It's a servanthood dominion religion. So if there is no superiority in the church, and remember Paul has already ruled that out with the Jew and Gentile thing. None of you should be haughty towards the other. He's already said that's a no-go there. Then there shouldn't, if, if that's the case in the church, there shouldn't be that issue in the world either. So we don't want an ecclesiocracy either. We don't want the church ruling things. So instead, Christians are to be, generally speaking, peaceful and harmonious, not haughty, but willing to stoop low and walk alongside the least of these. That's why he says associate with the lowly. None of us are above blessing the homeless man. None of us are above helping someone who has a need. Um, why? Well, one of my favorite verses when Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, um, look, what do, you, what do you have that you have not received? What do you have that you have not received? Nothing. You've all received it. So don't act like it's yours to begin with. So you can achieve this by remembering the fact that you have a lowly estate. So don't be wise in your own eyes, he says. Don't lean on your own understanding. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So if possible, another important verse, if possible, so long as it depends on you, he says, live peaceably with all. Now, Paul assumes, he's not ignorant to this, but Paul assumes that the world will be hostile to the gospel. The world will be hostile to the gospel. Things will get a bit murky at times. Nevertheless, our posture is one of goodness and justice in the sight of everyone. We, we want to be goodness and justice in the sight of everyone out in the world. We are told to be peacemakers. And while certain occasions may call for troublemaking, rest assured that this sort of troublemaking is actually peacemaking. It's just that troublemaking is oftentimes and usually the thing that disturbs a false peace. So you want to be a peacemaker, but make sure it's 
actual peace and true peace, not false peace. So Paul says, don't return evil the same manner in which it was received. If, if evil was done to you, don't go and, and do that thing, the same thing back. Don't repay evil for evil. Instead, know that God's governance and God's predestination actually matters and it must prevail. Now, we know that we don't govern the affairs of other men, so we're supposed to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. So live by faith because you are just. So our conduct, like our theology, has to be holy and godly. That's our responsibility. You can't control what other people do to you. So as far as it depends on you, you need to live peaceably with everyone in the church and outside the church. The rest is in God's hands. Now, verses 19 through 21 get very interesting. It says, Beloved, um, beloved is a term that the Apostle John likes to use, but here Paul employs it. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what should you do? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, by you not repaying evil for evil, by you showing blessing, by you living at peace, by you being a person of justice, you are heaping burning coals on his head. So don't be overcome by evil. There's a temptation out there to be overcome by evil and want to adopt evil's practices. Don't do that, he says. Overcome evil with good. Now Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 32:35 which interestingly enough is a chapter in which God gives the Jews, his covenant people, a glimpse of what is to come, how he would use the Gentile nations to stir and provoke them to jealousy. That's what God does. He uses nations and other peoples to provoke us to jealousy, to judge us, judge, judge people. And here Paul contextualizes this ever-present problem of personal vengeance or what we might call vigilantism. Think of Batman or some of the superheroes who take it upon themselves to, to, to bring justice to the world. I mean, they even call it the, the Justice League. They're about the justice business. But what does Paul teach about vigilantism, about us taking matters into our own hands and doing what we think should be done? Well, he says, look, if you're going to act this way, God will judge it. Uh, that's what happened with, by the way, our Lord and Savior, who was crucified unjustly. His death was an unjust execution. And what did God do? He judged the nation. He brought the wrath of Rome on them 30 years later, 40 years later. So Christians are called to function different than the world. We are not to exact justice on our own personal terms. Well, they did this to me, so therefore I'm going to respond this way. Children, you need to learn that lesson too. Just because your sister or brother comes up and, and smacks you in the back of the head does not give you the right to go and smack them back. And you don't get to quote the Lex Talionis to your parents, which learn that Latin phrase and we'll be super impressed. Uh, that's the eye for the eye principle. It doesn't mean, oh, he punched you in the shoulder, so you get to punch him back in the shoulder. An eye for an eye, right? A shoulder for a shoulder. It's not what it means. It just means there are just penalties that need to be um, enacted that fit the crime. So someone steals something, you don't put them to death. That's reserved for other capital case crimes like um, rape or murder or kidnapping even. 
So we're supposed to settle disputes the way God sees fit. We're not settling disputes however we see fit, especially when you consider physical violence. It's not permitted. Now you have a right to defend yourself. You have a right to carry a pistol, conceal it, to defend yourself, the life of your neighbor, the life of your, your friends and your family and so on. And you have that right. What's up, buddy? It's all right. <laughs> Liam's saying hello. You have a right to do that, but you don't have a right to just go out and do whatever you want with that pistol because you think you're the law. That's why it's erroneous when you hear police officers or sheriffs say, oh, I am the law. You're not the law. You're supposed to be a servant of the law. And, and, and even nowadays, we have a problem with that anyway. So note that Paul says beloved, by the way. I want to point this out here. He says, Beloved, as people loved by God and as people who bear the image of God know that just because something unjust happens doesn't mean that God doesn't see it. Listen to John Murray because this quote is brilliant. He said, The essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God to take everything into our own hands. That's the essence of ungodliness. That's what um, Adam and Eve had done, done in the garden. They took things into their own hands. So justice as a concept has its place in God's covenantal economy. So don't take matters into your own hands. That's what he's saying here. That's the message. Instead, your personal responsibility is to feed and quench your enemies and even clothe your enemies if necessary. Now, just a, a quick historical context here. Paul writes this just before the Jewish rebellion of 66 that broke out where they were responding to the Roman Empire. This was happening in Judea. Paul is watching this unfold. He sees the tension rising between Rome. Remember, um, Nero was the Caesar at the time. Nero had a good, a good well, I shouldn't say good, but a, a better run at the beginning of his years. Uh, and then things got really bad for him. Uh, he was quite a wicked tyrant. He's the beast of Revelation. Um, so you have that situation going on. But Paul is quoting Deuteronomy. He's watching this unfold. And he's seeing Rome the tyrant judging his fellow kinsmen who have not repented and trusted Christ. So he sees this taking place. And there's a lot of evil and a lot of wickedness. And Paul says, you guys have a responsibility. And there is a purpose for in God's covenantal system of justice. Don't negate that. So Christians who are caught in the middle of statism like we are today, you are not to try and overcome evil by piling on more evil. That's why it's immoral to go up and shoot an abortion doctor. As much as he deserves to die, that's not your vengeance to take. So all of this rebellion was being fomented. So instead, we're supposed to do good. According to Leviticus 16.12, we're supposed to do good to one another. <laughs> we're supposed to treat our enemy as though he were an altar. That's Leviticus 16.12. We're supposed to put honor and peace and goodness, those are the coals, on his head so that he will be humbled before the Lord. Now, keep in mind, a flurry of activity up here. Keep in mind that uh, in your Bible, if you're looking at your Bible, there are no chapter divisions. When Paul wrote this letter, he didn't say, ah, and now we're on to chapter 13, verse 1. Those were written later. So there's a stream of thought that carries over. So you shouldn't just isolate Romans 13 from Romans 12. So look at Romans 13, though. This is, this is probably one of the most discussed passages of our time right now. Verse 1. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Ah, see, you're supposed to do whatever they say. Keep reading. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, the corrupt justice system, the corruption we see on all levels of government, all of that stuff, that's not an institution of God. It's there by the will of God, but it's there as a judgment of God. Paul is not setting up, hey, blind obedience, do whatever the state tells you to do. If they tell you that you have to you know, do this, that, and the other, then you better do it, otherwise you're sinning. Not necessarily. You may do it strategically because you don't want to lose your car or have it impounded, or you may do certain things and swimming in this ocean of tyranny. You may do it strategically, but it's not a blind obedience. A couple of things. This verse, I tell you, out of all verses, this has been, it seems like, most abused the past couple of years by unwitting evangelicals. Notice a couple of things. First, subjection is required. Paul says subjection is required. So it, if you isolate that statement from the rest, that you might conclude that absolute, unquestionable submission and subjection is required, but that's not quite the case. Second, what Paul does next is place those authorities over the, under the governance of the triune God. Note that. Rejecting this divine right of kings, which was a big thing in history, not so much today, though it seems like it's rearing its head again. Paul says that those governing authorities are there in place because God put them there, yes. But in other words, their very presence, the very presence of civil authorities, biblically prescribed, is good and true. It's a good thing. But Paul, and this needs to be emphasized, he's not describing Nero's present governorship here. The Emperor Nero. See, Nero was benevolent and, yeah, he was weirdo, but, you know, maybe we should just obey him. He's not describing what's happening in first century Rome. He's prescribing what ought to be. So there is no authority that exists in the world except for that which gets its its subordinate authority from God. So note that. There's no authority that exists in the world except for that which gets its subordinate authority from God. If you read the Warrington Declaration, one of the things that was emphasized is this point. You don't just walk up and say, I have authority. I have a weapon. I'm the magistrate. Do whatever I say. That's not how this works. There's no, you don't just get to declare that you have authority, especially authority that's somehow disconnected from God. That doesn't exist. There is no authority, he says, apart from God. So the, the, the covenantal reality, or what we call the sphere of the civil magistrate, exists as an institution because God put it there. It's a good thing that we have magistrates. The rulers are not divine, though. They're servants, as, as we'll see here. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the state, along with its constituents, is to be obedient to the law of God. This is a mandatory requirement with no exceptions. Why? Because the authority is only legitimate to the degree that it aligns with the very creator who made the job description. In other words, you have authority as as, as parents, but that authority isn't yours. It's God's. And the magistrate has authority too, but it's not theirs. 
it's God's. And the minute you divorce it from that is the minute you have statism or tyranny or a heavy handedness in the home. So we have to watch out for that. So illegitimate authorities who are sinning by not obeying the law of God should be, listen carefully, should be tactically and strategically resisted. But the ones that are, are obeying God, the, the judicially oriented ones that are doing true justice, they are to be submitted to in honor. But more on that later. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul says in Romans 12, don't avenge yourself. Why? Leave it to the wrath of God. So how is God's wrath demonstrated on earth? There are two things we learn from the book of Romans. How does God demonstrate his wrath on earth? Number one, go back to Romans 1. He gives people over to their sinful lusts. That is the pouring out of the wrath of God. The, the, the pride event in D.C. is a wrath of God moment. That's his wrath being poured out. Utter destruction, utter profanity, utter degradation, a disintegration into the void, Van Til has said. You're just grinding yourself down to nothing. Second way God demonstrates his wrath is through the avenger servant, the civil magistrate. When you have a, a, someone who commits murder and... Um, very few states have the death penalty anymore. I don't know how many. I didn't look that up. But someone who commits murder is, is to be put to death by the magistrate. And in that moment, when that happens, that is the wrath of God being executed. That is a good and righteous thing. So Paul says, again, there's no authority or power except from God. So as the creator, he gets to set those things up. He gets to demonstrate how he's going to deal with sin in, in crim, criminology and things. He's the author of order, not anarchy, as one writer said. So Paul, he's not against the, a, a reformation of government, a change in government, and so on and so forth. But he is against things like anarchy and statism, um, chaos, and complete social disorder. That is not a biblical model. That's why we can't go so far with the, our libertarian friends. Um, you want to call yourself a theocratic libertarian, fine. But full-blown libertarianism, we can't fully go along with because God still has a formula for dealing with justice. So he's not against those things, uh, against reformation, but he is against anarchy and disorder and statism. So we know this. Every aspect of life is under the authority of God and his law word. Every aspect of life, your parenting, education should be this way. All of these things. But even the magistrate who's supposed to function a certain way. Now, notice in this text that the magistrate is a servant. That word we get is what we get for deacon. So civil magistrates are actually like a deacon of God. They are put in place under the authority of God himself. So authority um, does not originate in themselves, as I've said. It's a derivative authority. It's a subordinate authority. It's an authority that's accountable to God. Its purpose is very narrow. What should the magistrate look like? What should a state look like? Some people ah, should be so small that you hardly know it's there. That's true. But it's very narrow. Punishing evil, rewarding good, he says. Very simple. Punishing evil, rewarding good. Our obedience to Caesar only makes sense when it's understood that he's God's Caesar. 
So Christians, we think the magistrate should exist because God has put it there. But it needs to exist a certain way. Don't avenge yourself. Let the avenger do it. We want a true judicial system, as I'll explain in a minute. Now look at verses 5 and 7. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Our conscience, by the way, being shaped and molded by the word of God. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. The minister there is actually a different Greek word, but it's the idea of a servant, a minister of God. He attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So Paul, Paul encourages the Christians in Rome, and us too, to be in subjection so as to avoid the wrath of God, which I take to mean not just avoiding the punishment that the magistrate might do for wrongdoing, you know, do good, and if you do bad, you might, you know, have a problem. But he also means avoiding the punishment of God for participating in a malignant program. I believe Christians today mostly are largely culpable for the statism we have going on around us. They're participating in that in a, in a bad way, just blindly following whatever comes down the pike. So we're not supposed to participate in it. We're not supposed to do, to do evil. We're supposed to be doing good, he says. So the, the magistrate, by the way, is permitted to take a tax, which biblically defined, um, how, do you guys like paying taxes? No one likes paying taxes. But biblically defined, we could argue that there should be like a, maybe a local head tax, and that really should only fund the court system. Not, not, not even a police force, not even any of those things. Maybe a sheriff and some deputies to, so they can arrest people and carry out warrants and so on and so forth. But for the most part, Taxes should only be used to fund a judicial process. Um, revenue, he says, is same thing. Revenue to re- revenue is owed. Expanding outward in, into non-material things, he says, respect and honor should be owed. Oh, give it to people who it's to whom it's owed. And of course, um, respect and honor, he says, should be paid like taxes. Which in our situation, taxes, man, it's like every five minutes you're being taxed. Uh, we were being taxed to uh, be uh, allowed to even come here in the place that was built by our taxes. So we have problems. <laughs> now, what should we do with a passage like this today? And I want to be careful because, uh, you know, th- this may take a while, <laughs> but we're going to get through it. And I'm going to stick to my notes. But it's especially difficult to navigate a passage like this today because for us, There are several reasons, not least, of course, is the fact of historical problem, what we call anachronistic etymology. So, in other words, words mean things to us. When I say taxes, you think, oh my word, the whole gamut, income tax, sales tax, death tax, capital gains tax, the list goes on. In the first century, they didn't have necessarily all of those, though they were taxed heavily in the Roman Empire, too. So words mean things, and it's difficult for us to interpret the Bible when we project all of our modern understandings of words onto the pages of Scripture. So this passage, it seems more than any, is prone to this fallacious reasoning. And I think it's because most evangelicals today have a very pagan and humanist view of civil, civil government. And ironically, it's the pagan government educating people into paganism, and so the formula gets really messed up. But as far as our governmental situation is concerned, just know it's very hard to unbake a cake. 
It's very hard to go back. Pull the eggs back out. Pull the flour back out. You can't. So we are, the cake has been baked. It's burnt right now and it's bad, but it's hard to unbake it. Now, there are several erroneous views of government that are out there. And rather than critique each one, I'm going to try to just give you a few quickly basic principles, things that we should be thinking about. First, the proper governance of the civil magistrate is a good thing. We need the civil magistrate because God says we should. It's, by the way, it's not one necessary evil among other necessary evils. God has established the throne, so it's a good thing. And since Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that's Matthew 28, it follows that all subsequent authority given to the magistrates must align with his authority. So we believe the magistrate's good, but we also believe that the magistrate should follow the authority that's only given because of God, not just because the Constitution says so, not just because a bunch of humanist guys got together and said, well, this is how it should be, and then we just blindly follow it. So magistrate's good, and it should be authority rooted in Christ. Rulers are called to rule in accordance to God and his standards, what we call the law of God. There are certain qualifications in Scripture for these things. Exodus 18.21, Deuteronomy 17.20. They're to be men of character, men of humility, not prone to bribery, and so on. So our disposition towards lawful rulers ought to be one of honor. That's 1 Peter 2.17. But when corruption enters, things go badly. We know that. And so we learn that politics is always moral. Okay? Politics is moral, which is to say it's always theological. Speaking of corruption, Calvin said when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. What do we have right now? Calvin understood Paul. That's what he basically. So what happens then when wicked rulers engulf an entire social order? Now, there, there is such a thing as Christian disobedience, and I don't have the time to go into it, but suffice it to say that the Hebrew midwives, Rahab, Daniel, and even the apostles themselves oftentimes defied the tyranny that they saw happening around them. And not just when the magistrates caused them to sin. This is in the Warrington Declaration as well. But also when the magistrates have overstepped their authority and jurisdiction. It's not just obey unless they tell you to sin. No, it's they have a, a strict parameter, a perimeter around their authority, and when they encroach upon others, then you, you disobey. So civil government is of God, as we have said, and as such, it ought to be governed by God's standards. So it's a sphere, uh, it's an institution that God has put in place, what he has ordained, which means it's covenantal. So the establishment and the execution of a magistracy involves God. It involves God's sanctions. So not only are we to fear, but they are to fear. The magistrate should fear God and strike fear into the hearts of evildoers. Now, I don't have time to develop this, but we need to have a proper vision of government. One, government should be limited. Punishing evil, rewarding good, minimal local taxation. Two, it should be juridical, that is, using God's law to punish evildoers, a court system, an appellate court system. That's it. That's the prescription uh, that we find in Scripture. There's no room for executive power or legislative power, and this is because God is the lawgiver and he is king. So we don't need to make up new laws, which are almost always humanistic, 
We don't need, as Chris fondly calls them, alphabet soup agencies of central planners that sit there and police every move and every decision that we make. We don't need any of that. We need local courts with local biblically qualified elders of character carrying out the law of God. That is biblical governance. And by the way, that's just a simple initial comment that needs to be fleshed out further. Lord willing, it'll happen someday soon. Now listen to this quote from Charles Hodge. He says, All authority is of God. No man has any rightful power over other men, which is not derived from God. All human power is delegated and ministerial. This is true of parents, of magistrates, of church officers. It was Paul's object to lay down the simple principle that magistrates are to be obeyed. The extent of this obedience is to be determined from the nature of the case. They are to be, to be obeyed as magistrates in their exercise of their lawful, key word there, by the way, because not everything that's legal is lawful, they're to be obeyed in the exercise of their lawful authority. When Paul commands, for example, wives to obey husbands, they are required to be obeyed as husbands, not as masters, not as kings. Children, you are to obey your parents um, as parents, though, not as sovereigns, and so in every case, end quote. That's Hodge. See, what he's saying is there's no passive obedience in this passage of Scripture. In other words, there isn't the slightest inkling of the Apostle Paul suggesting that blind obedience, no matter the cost, must be held up. Just do what the government says because Romans 13. How many of you have been told that? Just do whatever they say because of Romans 13. That is an unbiblical, dare I say, pagan system of government. It's absolute garbage, and unfortunately, Christians are the ones that keep saying it. He is very clear. He says, all authority is God's. It is his to dispense, and it is his to withhold. The power of the sword is a big deal, as it shows that God cares a lot about obedience to his law. If you won't obey his law, the sword exists to punish you. Rush Juni writes, When the state abuses God's law, it enslaves people unjustly or kills them without cause. God will enslave and kill the state. The point is, no one is exempt from obedience to God's law, order, not the magistrate, not the citizen. No one is exempt. Lesser magistrates can interpose, governments can change, and in the case of the United States right now, it should change. It's even in the Declaration of Independence, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. It's necessary right now. <laughs> so essentially, we have a twofold ministry when dealing with the judgment of God and the ever increasing power of the state. What is our job? Our job is to teach and preach a biblical view and persuade others to adopt it. You all have that power. Make sure the Warrington Declaration, you, man, put that in everyone's inbox that you can. Put it in there. Educate people on the biblical prescription for this stuff. I've been sending it to people all over the place. Um, some well-known folks, some, you know, not. It doesn't matter. Get it, get it places. Share it. Second, we tactically and we strategically figure out ways to opt out of the status machine without harming ourselves, without harming our families, without harming our neighbors, and most importantly, without harming or forsaking the Dominion Covenant. More needs to be said there. I don't have the time. 
Now, I want to wrap up. <clears throat> I don't want to lose sight of the practical teaching at the end of chapter 12. Uh, Seth read Psalm 1 and 2, and I had him read that very intentionally because it fits in Romans here. Psalm 1 is very much like Romans 12, and Psalm 2 is very much like Romans 13, meaning this. Psalm 1, like Romans 12, is a very basic teaching, and it teaches that the law of God matters for the individual. The law of God matters for you. We're supposed to be firmly rooted in it, and when we are, it looks a whole lot like pouring yourself out on an altar. And Psalm 2, like the first part of Romans 13, speaks of the authority of King Jesus and how nations are to obey God, including the civil leaders. So this is all very practical in that we have the opportunity to, to worship and serve the Creator, the opportunity to demonstrate for the world how to function as, as people with self-government. That We have that opportunity. We can create things like private arbitration services. Don't go to the court system. You just pay them. Have private arbitration services or, or rival court systems. We will adjudicate for you. We, will, we have a just system. We have the law of God. Or perhaps education centers and so on. We have an opportunity to really exhibit for the world what peacemaking really looks like. And we can work inside the status machine, status machine while undermining it through careful tactical strategic steps. And that's something that Chris has been working on in his series of exhortations that I hope you'll turn into a blog post or 10 down the road. But the point is our world is running headlong into danger and we have to warn them at every single turn. There is no justice in the streets because there's no justice in religion in the home. There's no justice in the streets because there's no justice in the courts. When you divorce God and his authority from the judicial process, you lose every single time and a social order crumbles. So we must not take, a vengeance, take vengeance upon ourselves, which is what we see happening all the time. No, we must walk the way of Jesus, blessing, not cursing, feeding, not ignoring, praying for our enemies, not repaying evil for evil, and may God bless our efforts in doing so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've given us this passage to consider, and I pray that we would, we would consider it, uh, that we would find ourselves uh, rooted in Scripture, rooted in the law of God, especially during a time where uh, the world around us is definitely not doing such things. So I pray, Father, for your blessing as we fellowship and as we eat and as we enjoy your beautiful creation. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.